Hello, everyone. I am Michael Calori, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, a podcast about the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hey. And this is a special episode of The Gadget Lab for two big reasons. First is that we'll be setting aside our usual show, show format this week to discuss two big topics in the news. So there will be no special guests, just our sparkling, intelligent, pleasing voices. <laughs> the other thing that makes this week's show special is that this is episode number 400. Hey, 400. <laughs> Happy 400th birthday to us. It's really bizarre. It's a lot of episodes. Mm-hmm. When did you first start recording these? Oh, gosh. It started as uh, the Danny and Steven show a long time ago. Steven Leckert and Danny Dumas. And it was video only for a while. And then we started publishing video and audio to uh, to our RSS feed. And then after, I don't know, I want to say maybe 100, 120 episodes, that shut down. And we just went to audio. Uh, the When we started audio, it was 20... 13, I think, and it was me and Matt Honan. Nice. Yeah, so it's been a while that we've been just audio. Matt Honan is now at BuzzFeed. He is. He is the San Francisco Bureau Chief of BuzzFeed News. There's been quite the cast of characters who've come through the Gadget Lab podcast. we got to get some of them back on. You know, and then, yeah, and then went on, and we do. Yeah, so, yeah, Yeah, we've we've had who? We've had, like, Mike Isaac was on the show, Brian Chen was on the show, Christina Bonington, Roberto Baldwin, uh, Nathan Hurst, um, Carissa Bell, um, Nathan Olivares-Giles, David Pierce, Matt Honan. But, okay, must say, best version of the show we've had so far right now. Right here. The three people sitting in this room, particularly the two people who are not me sitting in this room. Ringing in 400. We've come a long way, folks. Yeah. It's very bizarre. I'm already exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you for listening this week. Uh, leave us a review. Five stars. Uh, okay, but really, we do have a podcast planned for you today. Later on in the show, we're going to be discussing a big story that Ariel wrote this week about the latest advancements in male contraception. We have a whole package running on Wired this week about how we pro- re- re- recreate pro-produce, how we procreate (laughs) and how that's changing because of futuristic stuff. And we're specifically going to be talking about a new gel that men can apply to their skin that reduces their sperm count. But first, we are going to talk about some of the big consumer tech news this week, and that is... Apple, (laughs) which is my best worst impression of Oprah, because Oprah Winfrey was at the Apple event on Monday, as I called it, on the Gadget Lab a few weeks ago. That's right. And so were you, Lauren. You and Oprah were sharing the same airspace. You probably breathed in some Oprah molecules. I just felt like I left and I... I received affirmations from her, even though we did not speak, and I was not any closer than 100 feet to her at any point. I just, I felt positive, positivity just radiating through. All of a sudden, I had, like, ideas for documentaries to pitch to Apple's bizarre new media service. I don't know. <laughs> A whole stack of fiction you have to read. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So the company had its big media event on Monday where it it unveiled an array of new services. This was a services-focused event. 
It's kind of a new era of Apple events. Apple showed off News Plus, a new subscription service for magazines and newspapers. Also, um, enhancements to the Apple TV app, as well as its much-anticipated streaming service for original program called TV Plus. We saw the new video game subscription service called Apple Arcade. And then we saw a credit card, which was, I don't know, one of the more, more bizarre moments I think I've ever experienced at an Apple event. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there's, so there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, so, where, where should we begin? Well, I would love to hear from you guys not being at the event, what it was like covering it remotely and watching the live stream and, and just sort of your own gut and visceral reactions to the announcements as they were being they were being made because obviously being there like you you see the audience reacting to certain things and clapping for what and you see like the celebrities being trotted out on stage what were your thoughts on it you know being at the desk um i thought it was it was just like any other apple presentation right up until they started talking about tv plus which was the last segment of the the presentation um then it just got really weird Really awkward and incredibly boring, I think. Yeah, I think I got up to take a bathroom break around the same time that Big Bird showed up on stage. <laughs> I was like, I don't need to be here for the next five minutes. So, I mean, the the whole thing about Apple's TV offering is that it was there was not much detail at all offered. And what we saw on stage was not, here's a bunch of great stuff that's coming to coming to our streaming service that's going to launch in the fall. It's here are celebrities who are talking about what it's like to make a show for Apple and how excited they are to be making this show for Apple. And then they leave the stage after three minutes and then another celebrity comes up and does the same thing. The messaging just did not feel coherent and the whole thing felt sort of like we don't really have anything else to show you, so we're just going to try to impress you by putting celebrities on stage. Right. Um, And just to back up one second, this is um, Apple's pitch for their new entertainment streaming subscription service, which is called Apple TV Plus. Yes. Um, People have been comparing this to like a sort of Netflix where Apple has got all of these very big names in Hollywood to create original content for a subscription service that's Apple only. So it's like exclusive television shows and um, movies and documentaries. Um, And that was one of the big TV announcements that Apple made this week. The other big one, of course, is a bunch of changes to Apple Apple TV proper, Mm -hmm. um, which includes a lot of new ways to bundle all of your streaming services and cable channels and everything that you pay to watch into your Apple TV. So you've got this sort of hub um, that can give you recommendations sort of cross-platforms. It's a sort of different way to organize your TV. And then Apple TV Plus, of course, is a separate thing that you would pay money for and Lots of big names signed on, though. I mean, I think, Mike, I I totally agree with what you're saying. It was very skimpy on the details. We didn't see any trailers, really. We didn't hear a lot of detail about what this is going to look like when it eventually launches. But we did see a lot of celebrities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Aniston, Oprah, um, Camille Lanjani, a bunch of people. Steve Carell. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was very hyped, right? Le- going into this, we all knew that Apple TV Plus, even though we didn't know what it was going to be called, we all knew that it was coming because they've been, you know, signing up all this Hollywood talent and making um, overtures to Hollywood, and it's very difficult to keep um, secrets in that town. So we knew sort of what to expect, and we were all expecting some sort of presentation. 
about the service and about the content that was going to be coming to the service. And just the presentation that we got was just very weird and very awkward. And I think people people within the technology press that traditionally cover Apple like us, we maybe saw it as just different and weird. But I'm also pretty certain just from the coverage that I saw elsewhere that the people who cover Hollywood and the people who cover streaming television also thought it was it was deeply weird. It makes me wonder if Apple is going to be able to wrangle the same star power when they finally roll this service out, whenever that may be. Mm -hmm. There were three things that really stood out, I think, about this particular Apple event. The first is that they didn't reveal a lot of details around pricing and availability of most of the stuff that they showed off or talked about on stage, with Mm -hmm. the exception of Apple News Plus, which was available through a software update to iOS and macOS almost immediately as Mm -hmm. the event was happening. And that is the $10 per month news subscription service that we knew was coming. Um, And Wired, by the way, full disclosure, is a part of that because Wired's parent company, Condé Nast, was um, a part of a prior company that was acquired by Apple that helped sort of build the bones of some of that service. But with the exception of News Plus, things like Apple Arcade, things like Apple TV Plus, um, things like even the credit card, there were these dates thrown out, you know, fall, summer, 2019, and um, we didn't hear pricing for a service like TV TV Plus. At one point, I turned to Peter Rubin, who was covering it alongside of me, and said, did I miss pricing? And he was like, nope, they didn't say anything for how much this is going to cost. We did see a sizzle reel at the end of the parade of celebrities. We saw a sizzle reel of little snippets of, like, the morning show that Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon and Steve Carell are, are all on together and things like that. And of course, it was tinged with all kinds of drama and, and dramatic music. So I would say that was the first thing that was unusual about the Apple event was like the ship time and the pricing was not as detailed as it normally is at an Apple um, product event. One of the reasons we're not seeing a lot of detail on some of these products, I think, is that this is all new territory for Apple. The company has had many services in the past, right? But this is kind of a turning point for the company in terms of its focus not being so, so much on hardware and being a lot more on subscriptions and um, services that it can sort of lock people into to keep it on its hardware. So, like, pulling off a streaming subscription service is no small feat, especially for a company that has no experience in it. Um, And same with like the sort of arcade pitch, right? Like this is very, very new territory um, for a company that's like not traditionally had much to do with entertainment at all. So you can kind of imagine behind the scenes people like scrambling to figure out what what this is gonna look like for a company that has for a long time, just been known as the iPhone maker. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's a, it's a big deal for them, and it'll be interesting to see how much of this pans out smoothly and how much of this ends up being quite rocky for Apple um, in terms of finalizing those details and, and rolling this stuff out to consumers later this year. Another thing that was a little bit unusual, too, is normally after these events, they have some type of hands-on area or designated area where attendees, and that includes press, will go and interact with the new thing. There was nothing like that. It just wrapped, and that was that was it, you know. Um, and lastly, I would say that there were, with the, maybe with the exception of the credit card, there were very few things that were shown on stage that felt actually very new. Um, you could say that Apple News Plus existed previously as Apple News and also has existed in lots of other forms, like other non-Apple apps that collate news. Um, you could say that the arcade, you know, video game subscription services 
sure, you can already get lots of games in Apple's App Store. Now they're going to be aggregating them and packaging them in some way. So it's kind of this repackaging of media that Apple was trying to sell people on. And that, to me, felt very different than some of the other events we've been to uh, for Apple. Yeah. And on that repackaging note, I think the thing that is probably the most impactful about the television announcements that we saw is not necessarily the streaming channel that's coming. It's the Apple TV app that is going to start appearing in a bunch of other different places, right? Um, They announced that they're revamping the experience of like buying content from Apple as a store. So what is previously known as the iTunes store is now going to be an app that you can get on your Apple TV, that you can get on your Roku, that you can get on an Amazon Fire device, that you can get on some smart televisions like Samsung smart TVs. Mm -hmm. You are going to be able to uh, download this app, go into the app, and then buy all the stuff that... You used to that you, you know you you can buy from all the other online stores. Plus, you'd be able to get add-on subscriptions for HBO, Showtime, Stars, and that's really neat because it gives people an alternative to say Amazon Prime Video. Um, it gives people uh, an alternative to any of those storefronts that they've used traditionally to buy stuff. Not just Apple device owners as well. Like as a Roku owner, I can go and download the app and just start buying things from Apple. That's really neat. I think that's going to change a lot about how personally like I consume things and how a lot of other people in North America consume things over smart TV devices. Uh, that made me wonder what the, and I'll, admittedly, I, I missed a little bit of that part of the presentation because I was filing a story at that point and Peter <laughs> Rubin had taken over the live blog and then we swapped again. But, um, but um, it makes me wonder how different it's going to be from the experience now where you go to your Apple TV and you see you see that there's a TV app and then you see movies and then you see iTunes right so you can like because you can go buy all that stuff now mm-hmm. on your Apple TV but it sounds like this is all going to be under the con- the container within the container of the TV app yeah so it'll operate like its own channel and with that all of will that be on inside. other devices so in the same way that Amazon Prime Video finally um, came to Apple TV. Now, Apple's version of this will be on Amazon sticks and yep. boxes. As far as we know. I wish Apple released a less expensive version of Apple TV alongside of this. If there was going to be a one more hardware thing on Monday, you guys are going to be shocked by me saying this, but it's not air power I was wishing for. <laughs> it was actually a cheaper Apple TV box or stick, streaming stick, um, with a redesigned remote. Like a $59 one? Yeah, I would have been super stoked. And imagine what that would do for the Apple TV footprint for mm-hmm. Apple. Right, and now now would be the time to do it. Yes, absolutely. Because it'll bring a lot more people into that universe that Apple is so desperately trying to expand. It's mm-hmm. a strong holiday item. They should lead with that one. They um, should. Wait, can we talk about the Apple card? Absolutely. Yes. This I agree with what Lauren said earlier. This was one of the more bizarre and interesting announcements, and I kind of can't stop thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> do you want one? I don't want one. I just want to know everything about how this is going to change the future of money. Like, it feels like a big deal um, for a couple reasons. One is that this isn't the first tech company to introduce a credit card. Like, that's not a brand new concept. But Apple is sort of the first of its kind to introduce a credit card. Like, Apple's a company that knows a lot about you. Um, it's very mindful of your data, but it still does know a lot about you and has tremendous power. And for me, there's like an interesting question about why you would want a company like Apple to sort of control your wallet. There's also this interesting question of like, 
what it even means to have a credit card, right? Because Apple's whole pitch with this thing is that it functions sort of like Apple Pay. You use it on your phone. And there is a physical card, which is made of titanium and very beautiful. Uh, They've redesigned the idea of a credit card so there are no numbers. It's just your name and it's like very minimalist and beautiful. Um, No numbers, no CVC, no signature. Right. But they don't want you to use the physical card. And you know this because they give you 1% cash back when you use the card, but they give you 2% cash back when you use Apple Card on your phone. So that's a pretty Mm -hmm. huge difference in rewards that's incentivizing you to use this like an app on your phone. And then it's 3% cash back if you use the digital card. So it's 2% if you use the digital card on your phone with Apple Pay. And then I think it's 3% if you use the digital card on your phone with Apple Pay to make Apple purchases. That's right, yeah. So you're incentivized to buy more Apple stuff. (laughs) Of course. Um, I mean, why not? But, it, but it, it does feel like a very different kind of credit card. And they've, they've made a big deal about um, doing away with fees for things like late payments or foreign transactions. Um, they made a big deal about how you can use this app to sort of decide how much you want to pay down your, your monthly bill. Um, and you can actually pay your credit card off every week if you want. Or you could sort of go longer. It's sort of customizable and person, personalized and... A totally new way to use a credit card. And I'm just fascinated to know, like, how much of that is bullshit? How much How much of that is actually going to change what we expect from tech companies in the future? And how much is going to change the way we spend? I, I have mixed feelings on this. I believe that there may be features that were non-obvious, that we have not dug into yet, that could sweeten the deal around this credit card and consumer benefits Um, That could be worth looking into, for sure. There's also part of me that thinks that this is maybe in some ways not all that different from, let's say, your favorite airline, like Delta, slapping its name on a card. You know, it's partnering with the issuer. In this case, the issuer is Goldman Sachs, but it could be any number of banks. And it's still MasterCard handling the payment processing. So you are not the issuing bank and you are not the processor. So you're still not really controlling any aspect of that idea of the credit card as we know it now. And then the other thing that kind of bugs me about it is that you have to have an iPhone that supports Apple Pay in order to go through the initial setup process, which means you have to have an iPhone to use the card. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have an iPhone with you physically when you go to swipe the card. You know, past the setup point after that, you can just swipe the credit card like you swipe any other credit card. Mm -hmm. But you, you basically... You have to be an iOS user. You have to be an iPhone user with NFC because Apple Pay only works on NFC iPhones in order to get this credit card, which seems to me like it's it's once again Apple just prioritizing its own customers of very expensive hardware with this particular offering. And then also if you just if you dig into the APR, the variable APR rates, they're pretty average. They're pretty much in line with what you get from other credit cards. So I don't know. Like I think. Maybe it could be really beneficial to people in future. It might be. It just feels like it might be a little too premature to say like, I think Apple is really going to revolutionize credit cards. <laughs> also, what is like more American than that? You know, yeah. it's like yeah, debt. Yeah. That's what I want. Bring I want it on. To, yeah, credit yeah, yeah, to yeah. debt ratio through Apple. Thank you. So, I, like the the I the whole experience of managing a credit card is pretty bad right now you know like there's a different app for every credit card you have you have to log into this banking system and move things around with routing numbers it's all just sort of kludgy um what i'm most impressed by is how apple took the whole experience of managing that and just put it 
into the actual operating system of the phone. That's it, right. It's an iMessage, right? Or well, you, you get- it, the, the whole, yeah. So your customer support happens over, over iMessage. And like all of the support for all of the features of the card live within Apple Wallet. Mm-hmm. So it's like always on your phone and it's a native app that Apple designed. So there's very clear charts. There are very clear, you know, there's not a lot of options. You just sort of tap on this and swipe on that and you can make payments. You can transfer money. You can use the same um, balance that you have to send money through iMessage. It's all tightly integrated into the phone. So in a way, it reminds me a lot of the iTunes store moment, um, Mm -hmm. whatever, 15 years ago or longer ago than that, 2001, when Apple came along and said, we're going to give you a new way to buy MP3s for a dollar a piece on the internet through this application. And all of the people who have been doing that forever said, well, this is really dumb. It's never going to work. People don't want songs. They want albums. The pricing is all wrong. The experience is all wrong. And you need this $450 piece of hardware in order to make it work. And then they ended up completely changing the music industry. So I don't think Apple is going to necessarily completely change the credit card industry, but they are rewriting the experience of what it's like to use a credit card on a mobile device. And for that, like, you know, applause for that. Do you think that they would ever get to the point where they open that up to non-iPhone users? Probably not. But I do look forward to using the Google card on my Pixel phone (laughs) next summer. Right. Well, that's like another thing that's interesting to me is that like, does this motivate other big companies to issue their own credit cards? And if so, what does that look like? Because Apple is, of, of any of the big five tech companies, Apple is the one I am most comfortable having access to financial information, right? Like, I actually believe that Apple will handle your your spending data mindfully. I do not believe that Google will do that. I don't believe Amazon no, will not. do that. Certainly not. I yeah. mean, like, it, it gets into weird territory, right? Where, like, is Apple sort of raising the bar for other tech companies to issue similar types of things? What happens when people buy into those systems? Like, I'm, I think you're right, Lauren, that, like, it could be very small impact in the end, but I, I also like just kind of don't know. And it's it's something that I think we will all continue to, you know, watch as it unfolds and when this thing actually becomes available later in the year. Yeah. It, it's something we'll be following quite closely. You're very you're totally right in that if one if there was a tech company I had to pick right now that would become a bank effectively that I would trust, it would probably be Apple over everybody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because uh this is like total side note, but like on the Upper West Side, when you get off the subway at 72nd Street, there used to be, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be this big, gorgeous bank called Apple Bank with like a little Apple logo. <laughs> and I used to like get off the subway and be like, huh, it'd be funny if Apple ever became a bank, huh? Like Apple Ooh. Bank. Yeah. You could you could picture it happening. And there are some analysts out there have been who have been saying that's, that's the direction this is all going in. Yeah, I believe it. Banking and real estate. Those are like two of the most powerful things that other companies could get into to remain powerful? Uh, Well, really quickly, before we take a break and then move on, Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to touch on Apple Arcade. Um, We don't really know much about this because it was, (laughs) again, glossed over. Let's just touch on it. It's called Apple Arcade, (laughs) and that's all we know. (laughs) Well, I thought the one thing that was interesting is Apple spent a lot of time during the presentation talking about the types of games that are going to appear in there, and they're all, like, you know, sort of immersive games, uh, games that are not necessarily as casual, which I tend to read as games that don't have a lot of in-app purchases uh, and don't mine your data. So we'll obviously know a lot more about that when they tell us more, which is probably going to be in the fall. 
I would guess. I would, I would think so. By then, everybody will have a credit card. And you get a credit card? And you get a credit card? <laughs> and you get a credit card? What do you think Jack Dorsey's thinking right now? He's thinking... Square has a credit card. He's thinking, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's take a break. And All then right. we'll come back and we'll talk about male contraception. Yes. So all week here at Wired, we have been exploring um, reproduction, contraception, sexuality, and relationships on the website with a series of stories uh, by a bunch of different writers. Ariel, you have written one of these stories. Uh, it was particularly resonant with the audience, so we would like to talk about it this week. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So the Wired Wide effort is called How We Reproduce. I decided to look at how we don't. Um, and one of the things that has been really interesting to me for a long time is the effort to develop hormonal male contraception. So a sort of analog to the pill, but for men, um, which obviously doesn't exist and will not <laughs> exist for a while. Um, but this this moment that we're in right now is really, really exciting um, because there is a large clinical trial happening right now in nine countries involving over 400 couples to test um, a method of contraception that works much like the pill to lower a man's sperm count um, to levels that are considered safe to not get pregnant. Um, and it's really exciting. Like, this is an effort that's been underway for decades, almost as long as people have been trying to make a pill for women. And uh, that goes back to the 50s, so like many decades. Um, and we've never seen something go to market. And this trial, we don't know what will happen. We don't know if it will result in something that people can actually access. And we also don't know how soon that will happen. Clinical trials are like very tedious. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Lots of hoops to jump through. Several um, phases. Many phases. Um, Got to make sure everything is safe. Got to make sure it's marketable, yada, yada, yada. Um, but we are in a sort of exciting moment, I think. Um, and speaking to researchers who have been sort of devoting their careers to studying contraceptive innovations, I'll also agree that like we're in a moment where it feels like this is picking up steam. There is interest collecting around it. Um, and there are a lot of really interesting scientific methods that seem pretty feasible. So you've said that the research around this started, I mean, back when research for women's contraceptives started, but obviously women's contraceptives have been on the market for a while now. So what has actually been the holdup here? Has it been all of the, you know, the complications that come with just getting this right? Or has, it, has there been um, societal, I don't know, stigmas around men having to reduce their sperm count for the sake of not getting people pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's all of the above. Um, Gregory Pincus, who's the researcher who's credited for developing the pill for women in 1957, I think, late late 50s, um, he also did research on creating a hormonal option that would render men's sperm count low enough to be considered contraceptive. So he was actually working on a male pill right alongside working on a pill for women. Um, and at the time, some of the feminist activists who were working with him and also funding his research were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we don't want this for men. It's pretty important that women can control this because women are the people who have to bear the responsibility of a pregnancy. And it's very important for sort of social, political, feminist reasons that, that women are in charge of their reproductive decisions and not men, right? So if you make something available to men, then you get these situations where a man says, I've got it covered, you don't have to take the pill, and you know, 
women just have less agency in those decisions. Are we still having those conversations now? I don't think we're having those conversations in the same way. Like, I think the reality for women today is different than it was in the late 50s. Um, and I think, like, you, you can you can see that because the pill had such an outsized effect on the social and political reality for women. Like, it's introduced in 1960, and, like, immediately you see uh, changes in how many women are in the labor force. You see changes in how late women are getting married and how late women are starting families. So there are, like, pretty immediate and tremendous effects of what this does for women. And I think now it's, you know... The, the social pressures are different. Um, but yeah, I think one side effect of making contraception uh, a women-only privilege is that you also make it a women-only burden. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that one thing that happens from not continuing that research into male contraception is that, um, yeah, men, I think, maybe feel a little bit disengaged from the conversation. They've been kind of sidelined for a long time. And it feels kind of curious uh, all of a sudden to say, like, actually, you like this is your responsibility, too. Like, mm-hmm. just because you're not the one with a womb doesn't mean you don't need to show up. Mm-hmm. If you could. Yeah. And I mean, your story makes the point, too, that women are only fertile for a couple of days per month. And men are producing sperm that could impregnate people all of the time. So it's actually, there's actually kind of an imbalance <laughs> that exists between when we are fertile and able to, and I say we as like, you know, a woman, and when we are actually able to make that happen and versus when a male is able to make that happen. And that is all the time. Yeah. And much later in life as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly, the, the target is very different. Um, for a pill for women, you're, you're trying to prevent a single egg that is released once a month uh, from like, the, the, there's a very sort of narrow target there. For men, it's like millions upon millions <laughs> of sperm that are like potentially being released like multiple times a day. Like, uh, it's it's scary. <laughs> so how much does this actually reduce the sperm? So, yeah, so um, there is a lot of sperm in ejaculate. Do you think this is the first time someone has said ejaculate on the Gadget Lab podcast? Uh, yes. Episode 400. As, as a noun, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as a verb, was maybe not. As a verb. I can only imagine <laughs> somewhere around episode 131. Goodness. Um, yes. Anyway, fertility researchers have, have um, deduced that you don't have to eliminate all sperm. The magic number is around 1 million sperm per millimeter is considered effective as contraception. So you don't have to sort of eliminate the production of sperm. You just have to reduce it. And one of the really effective ways you can do that is a combination of hormones that's very similar, actually, to what's in um, the pill for women. The combination for for women is usually um, estrogen and progestin. And for men, you use progestin and testosterone. Um, And for actually many, many years, researchers have found this to be pretty effective. There's some debate about you know, the exact quantity or the ratio. And I think this mirrors women's contraception pretty closely. Um, you want to sort of minimize side effects while increasing efficacy. But um, So if most men have, what, about 50 million per milliliter or like 100 million per milliliter, you're bringing it down to, to one. Yes, that is right. that is sort of the... The, number, the threshold that is considered safe. That's a lot of swimmers. It's a yeah. lot, Lauren. It's a lot. Wow. But they have quite a journey. Yeah. 
And it's nice to know that it's not hashtag, that it's hashtag not all sperm. Hashtag not all sperm. <laughs> uh, so tell us about the actual, the, the product that they're trying to develop. Yeah, so there are actually a bunch of different um, products that are sort of in testing right now. The one that I chose to focus on in my story is the one that is sort of furthest along and looks most promising at the moment. And that is a gel called uh, NEST. Um, I don't know if they're pronouncing it NEST or NEST or something else altogether. But Does it, it is come um, bundled with a home camera? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and Google Home. Just yeah. keep an eye Just on your you little need. swimmers. Um, and a thermostat to make sure that uh, <laughs> temperatures you know, are right. Temperatures good. A basal thermostat. <laughs> um, uh, so this is a, a hormonal gel, not a pill or an injection or anything like that. It's a it's a gel that's sort of sinks into your skin and is absorbed uh, hormonally that way. So um, the clinical trial that I mentioned with 400 couples uh, involves men rubbing this gel onto their shoulders every morning and basically nothing else. Very simple. Um, Why the shoulders? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I asked um, one of the principal researchers uh, who developed this gel that very question, and she said that uh, they they built off some previous research um, that had to do with testosterone replacement therapy, and so they were like sort of already using a gel that was testosterone based, and they found that it pretty much works no matter where you apply it to your body. Um, something about the shoulders felt like convenient. It felt like people were more likely to use it that way. Um, she also said that they they had considered making it a gel that you like rub in your sort of genital area. Um, that wouldn't fly, I don't think. No, it, it didn't fly. And she also said that uh, they were concerned that if there was rubbing, that it might rub off. Yeah. <laughs> which I found very delightful. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the, the sort of idea is that you're, you you just fit it into your daily routine. You know, I talked to one couple who's participating in the trial and um, they told me that it just is like the thing you do after you brush your teeth and comb your hair. You just like rub in a little gel into your shoulders and then boom, you don't make a baby. Wow. Um, one of my one of my favorite issues that you raised in this piece uh, is actually like it's in the headline, you know do men want this? Is this something that when eventually a product like this, whether it's a gel or a pill, makes it to the shelves, is it something that men are going to want to use? I don't know, Mike. Do they? <laughs> I would assume so, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it, I think that's a complicated question, and it's it's one that I certainly can't answer because people who study this kind of thing can't answer it squarely. Yeah, I mean, I would also assume that like since there's not a lot of male contraception out there that there's probably not a lot of behavioral data that we can look at. Yeah, I I think, I mean, this is sort of anecdotal, but I think like in my experience talking to my male friends while I was working on this story, um, it seems like a lot of men just haven't really thought about it. Like they haven't been part of the conversation. It hasn't been a responsibility of men to not get women pregnant by and large. and so most of my friends, at least, were kind of like, I've I've never considered that. Is there something out there that I could take? No? All right. Well, I'm not going to consider it <laughs> uh, because there's, I mean, it, it's sort of a moot point. Um, but I, I do think sort of talking to some of the researchers who have been studying and trying to develop 
male contraceptive options for decades, um, there is a sense that we're in kind of like a turning point moment where uh, perhaps it's a generational thing, perhaps it's like a wokeness thing, um, perhaps it's just the fact that these um, new contraceptive options like the gel like seem to be pretty low side effect so far. Um, but it does seem like men are maybe more receptive to the idea now. There have been like a couple of sort of surveys about men's opinions on this and none of them really land on the same point. They all kind of say something different. Um, but I think maybe we're we're moving toward a point where it's a little bit more socially acceptable to say like, hey, it would be really great if men could be part of this conversation. And also there's a lot of science that's going to make this a product that's good and has very few side effects and is affordable and convenient and trust us it's not that hard what are the side effects so it's hard to say at this point because they're still in clinical trials um in the past like other attempts to make a hormonal male contraceptive um there have been issues with like Honestly, the same kinds of things that women deal with when they take birth control pills. So like, um, you know, weight gain or moodiness or hair loss or or like clotting or death. I don't know if there's been clotting or death. <laughs> I mean, uh, but yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Those like, are real. I think, um, like, in the past when the media has covered the effort to develop male contraception, there's a lot of eye rolling from women who have taken the pill for a long time because it's like, yeah, like you might break out. Yeah, you might gain some weight. Like, welcome to the club. Like, you're, you know, screwing around <laughs> with your hormones. Like, something might happen. Yes, okay, deal with it. Um, but, of course, like, nobody wants to deal with side effects, women or men. So if you're, like, trying to develop a new product, you're going to try to make one with as minimal side effects as possible. Mm -hmm. um, when I spoke to this couple who's part of the trial um, that's going on right now, I asked them sort of what their relationship with hormonal contraception had been before. And... Um, Julia, who's the woman in the couple, she had been taking Depo-Provera, which is like an injectable form of birth control. And she was like, eh, like it was fine. I like gained a little bit of weight, um, you know, it, like it, minimal side effects. And then her husband, Michael, kind of like jumped in and was like, yeah, actually, you were kind of moody when you were taking that. And like sometimes I could tell that you were like getting a little moody. And then I asked them, like, okay, so... Really, really healthy for the conversation. <laughs> How did it go after that? Well, but then I asked Michael, like, what's your experience like with this gel so far? And he was like, honestly, I've been a little moody. <laughs> it was this kind of wonderful moment where we all laughed because it, it's, like, not that big of a deal, but it sort of does represent this bigger thing, which is, like, men starting to maybe empathize with these things that women have been doing for a very long time to sort of keep up with their sexual health and make smart reproductive <laughs> decisions. They have, a, um, they have a little bit of ways to go, I think. Yeah, but like <laughs> I, I thought it was a nice moment of just saying like, yeah, we can like share in this now. And like yeah. I'm I'm sharing in that burden and like, sorry that I snapped at you. <laughs> it was very sweet. Yeah. Well, thank you for telling us about your story. My that pleasure. was really an excellent story. Yeah. Everyone and you should go read it. And, and we should also read all of the other fantastic stories in the How We Reproduce package. There's um, lots of cool stuff about science. There's lots of cool stuff about internet culture. Um, it's a really fun series. There's a piece yeah. about anxiety. There's a piece about uh, products that you may want to purchase mm -hmm. uh, to improve your sex life and to improve your chances of contraception and to improve the health of your newborn. That's right. Adrian wrote about those. Mm -hmm. um, Emma wrote about um, the child-free Reddit culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is really 
Really great read. R, no kids. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is. I think it's R, child free. R, child free. Yeah, that's oh, right. Of course it is. What's R, free child? <laughs> is it just like people giving away their kids? <laughs> oh, she's looking it up. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. I'm, no. I was, I didn't, I'm worried. I didn't go there. Oh, no. Ooh, it is a community, but it's private. Oh, that doesn't, that's that concerning. doesn't sound good <laughs> at all, actually. Ooh, yeah. Well, um, who wants to go first with recommendations? Well, I don't have one at the moment, so you guys go first. All right, Ariel, what's your recommendation? I would like to recommend an app that I have used for a long time. Um, to sort of preface, I will say quickly that I have been a, a journaler for my whole life. Or, like, journaling isn't maybe the right word. I, I've had an obsession with documenting my life from a very young age. So I have many notebooks that detail my daily activities. I have a lot of notebooks with like to-do lists in them. I sometimes just like leave scraps of paper around with like stuff on them. I sometimes email myself to remind myself of like a fun moment. Um, This is all in the hopes that one day a future civilization will find my dispatches and I will, you know, live on forever in in memory. Anyway, um... (laughs) One of the uh, ways that I like to document my life is with this app called Day One. And wait, let me make sure that's actually what it's called. Yeah. It's with an app called Day One. It is a free app. um, And it's basically just like a very beautifully designed minimalist journal on your phone. Um, So I use this if I'm like on the go or like just wanted to like jot something down that's like tweet sized um, to save it in this diary app um one of the features i really like about it is that it will remind you of something you wrote exactly a year ago or two years ago or three years ago so you get sort of like on this day notifications oh it's like a time hop for your journal exactly um which is which is fun for many reasons but like in particular it's fun when like something really like emotional happened it's fun to say like oh yeah i don't even think about that anymore um Mm -hmm. anyway this week this week, in my day one app, I was reminded that two years ago I started at Wired. What? Wow, happy anniversary! Yeah, Wednesday oh my was my Wired anniversary. So wow. that's we a, didn't celebrate. Oh, it's our four hundredth episode and your anniversary. It's exciting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if if anyone is interested in in journaling, I think this is like a really really nice way to start because you don't have to buy anything. You can just sort of jot down thoughts when you want and it's free okay my recommendation this week is for an app that i use regularly called square cash i was thinking about it because obviously we talked about apple's credit card this week and apple has something called apple pay cash that allows you to share cash between iphone users um if you're not an iphone user and you're looking for an alternative there is of course venmo as well which is very popular among the youngish folks. Um, But Venmo is kind of a social network in its own right. A lot of people like to include little messages or code or emoji or things that signal what it is they're paying for. Square Cash to me is the perfect in-between because I feel like it has the clean, simple interface of what would feel like an Apple app when it comes to exchanging money. You open it, you can authenticate through Face ID, you punch in the number, the dollar amount that you want to send, and then it's got you know a save list of contacts and you can just send it on off. And everyone has a, a cash tag that is their cash name. But it doesn't have the social element of Venmo where you have to describe what it is you're paying. And you could, you could say like paying rent or whatever it is or paying for beers. Um, but you don't have to get 
I don't know, there's there's not a performative element to Square Cash. It's just simple and straightforward. And um, and I really like it. And it works on both iOS and Android. And that's my recommendation for the week. That's great. Okay, so my recommendation is uh, a podcast. And I've recommended this podcast before. And I'm going to re-up it. Is it the Gadget Lab podcast? No, although that one is very good. Uh, this is a podcast uh, from Pushkin Industries, I think is what they're called. It's called Broken Record, and it's a podcast about music. And uh, it is from the minds of Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Headlam and Rick Rubin. I think you've recommended this before. I have recommended this before, and I'm recommending it again because season two has just started. Uh, it started on Friday, so if you – like a week ago, and there's new episodes coming out I think every week or every other week. So um, if you slept on it, now is the time to get back into it because season two starts off with a banger. It's a two-part interview with Questlove, uh, the drummer from The Roots and the storied hip-hop producer, the um, anchor musician in the Soul Quarians Collective, and just all-around – Awesome polymath DJ, cultural guy, wired cover man. Name of one of our conference rooms. Name of one of our conference <laughs> rooms. He DJ at our festival. He's awesome. Anyway, the conversation is really fascinating. Even if you don't care about Questlove, you don't care about hip hop, you got to listen to this conversation. It's really, really cool. Um, there's some great stuff in there where he talks about like how he hooked D'Angelo into into hiring him. Uh, he tells one of the absolute greatest Barack Obama stories that I've ever heard. Yes. Um, it's excellent. So Broken Record Season 2. Season 1 is also very good. Uh, and you should go back and listen to that. You can pick and choose because the topic may be something you're interested in. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is a writer and a podcast host, and uh, some people find him a little bit grating as a host. He's actually like on his on his best behavior on this show. Uh, he um, is I find him quite enjoyable as a host, so don't let that stop you. Rick Rubin is a um, a longtime um, music industry mogul. He got his start in the early '80s in the hip hop community and did a bunch of metal. And did a bunch of hip hop that you've no doubt heard, and uh, brings a lot of expertise to the show. So, really good, broken record. Find it wherever you podcast. That's my recommendation. That's a great. I, w- I really want to listen. That's a great recommendation. Great. That and day one. I'm gonna start journaling. I'm gonna start listening. And we'll send each other a lot of cash. <laughs> each other money. We'll squash each other. Um, thank you so much to everybody for listening to this week's show. We're going to be back next week. We will have a special guest. We will have our news roundup for you. And we'll be on into our fourth century. I don't know. What do you call it when we're at number 401? I don't know. The next chapter of the Gadget Lab podcast, <laughs> which would be much like this chapter, uh, except just, you know, older. Better.